HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. This program was sponsored by White Oak Pastures. The Harris family has lived and farmed White Oak Pastures for 145 years. They are committed to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. Their mission? We take care of the land and the herd, and they take care of us. For more information about their cattle and their farm, visit whiteoakpastures.com. That was a message from our sponsor. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio. And we are radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I'm joined today on the phone by Adam, who's coming from southeast Arizona. Is that right? That's right, yep. We're in uh, Cochise um, County, Arizona, and about an hour uh, east of Tucson. Okay, so not usually are people thinking about uh, what the farmers of the desert are experiencing. Those of us who live in places where the rain just falls and falls, and this year fell almost every day through the month of May. Uh, could you explain a little bit as you look out over the landscape there what you see? Yeah, we, we're near uh, the San Pedro River, um, and which flows north from Mexico. And right now, looking out over the river, it's all cottonwoods that are dormant right now and mesquite trees that are also dormant. So it, the, the natural landscape looks pretty brown and gray this time of year. Um, but we're warm enough generally to have a year-round growing season, at least for uh, greens and such. So our fields are really green right now. We've got... Um, We've got about six acres of pasture that our chickens are on, and we've got six acres of vegetables going also, and then an acre of garlic that's in right now. And it's mostly a green and uh, greens and root vegetables that are growing this time of year for us. And what has been uh, what has been the history there in the Sleepy Hollow world? What has been your your journey is, uh, getting to this point? Sure, we've uh, we started. Uh, there, there's actually four of us that own the farm together. It's uh, my wife, Debbie, uh, and then our friend CJ and our friend Clay and myself we all, uh, started the farm together. And uh, before Clay had joined on, uh, CJ, Debbie, and myself had started on uh, about a quarter of an acre right outside of Tucson city limits. And we eventually expanded that to just under an acre. 
and we were leasing land and doing primarily farmers markets and restaurant sales. And we're really hoping to make a little bit more of an impact on the uh, local food scene here just because it, it, it's, Tucson's got close to a million people in the area, and it's really underserved as far as um, you know, local produce growers. So we got an opportunity to um, get a mortgage on 75 acres, uh, where, which is where we are now. So we made that move in April of 2010, and uh, we kind of, you know, try to transition from the small farm up to this farm, and, and we ran both farms for about eight months at the same time until we closed the, the old one down and, you know, shifted production 100% over to where we are now. So that was just, you know, we ended the old farm December 22nd, I believe, of 2010. So we've been here just over a year full-time, and it's been... There's been a little bit of a shift in weather for us uh, because we're on this river valley. Our elevation is about 3,200 feet, and we moved from an elevation of about 2,800 feet in the Tucson Valley. That was, and our nighttime temperatures changed by about five to ten degrees. Uh, it got colder, which is beautiful in the summertime. Uh, but this time of year, we deal with you know anywhere between 15 degree to 25 degree nights, uh, starting in November and stretching all the way into April. And uh, some, every once in a while, getting a dip into the single digits. And at the same time, the daytime temperatures warm up to, uh, you know, I, I don't know, it's probably going to be 70, 75 today, which is great. <laughs> but the, uh, the difference between night and day is really interesting with, as far as how the plants react to that. But you were like a tightly coiled, uh, you were like a little tightly coiled kitten who could grow up into a cat. You weren't starting from nothing and trying to take on a huge project. Sounds like you had a business at a relationship, right. uh, you know, had practiced yourself into a good fitness level of farming and then had a good lucky strike. Do you, Absolutely. what can you reflect yeah, I mean, we, a little we've on? We've been blessed with a, you know, with, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, nothing. I just wanted you to reflect a little on that, um, that Mobac fit in, in your, in your farm and, and, how you think you were ready for it and what was surprising about the stretch and, like, how you were able to move from something so small to, to something quite quite big. I mean, six acres of vegetables sure. ain't nothing to sniff at. I, I, I think what gave us the, the confidence for that is that we had worked on a farm um, previous to starting our own, uh, Clay and Debbie and myself had, and uh, the three of us had worked together. And that farm was... Um, about the same size as where we are now, and they were running a good size CSA, but weren't really interested in, in staying with food production as much, and they were getting more into um, agricultural entertainment and doing festivals and um, tours and that kind of thing as their main business. And the three of us, and then Clay included when he joined on, our, our big interest was food production. And when we had started on the small farm, it was it was kind of all we could afford to do uh, when we went to start on our own. Uh, we got to, you know, we could only afford a few hundred dollars a month on land and we couldn't afford equipment to get started on a bigger piece. So we started off on the small piece with the intent to eventually grow into something bigger. And um, that, that small piece offered us to, you know, offered us an opportunity to get our names out there in the community and get our, um, you know, our relationships with the restaurants and at the farmer's market established. And 
we we felt limited with that amount of land. Like it was really hard to run a, it, it or it would be hard to run a CSA just because of the uh, the limitations of the space and not being able to rotate crops and then um, have enough successions going. And we knew, you know, from our time at the farmer's market when we were at the small farm, you know, so many people were coming up and, you know, when are you guys going to start a CSA or will you start a CSA? So there was a lot of uh, interest in that. And we used the, the CSA. We started at the uh, in May of 2010 was when we first started our CSA. So we had already purchased this property and um, used the, the financing of the CSA to kind of to make the transition happen. And and again, I think like what I said earlier too, as far as there not being a whole lot of farms that serve the Tucson area, I mean that gives us good confidence in the market. At least that there's a really wide open um, market to sell our our goods here, and there's a, there's a great demand for it, and just not a, not enough people doing it yet. I've heard that story before. Um, now. <laughs> So the the appetite was there and the interest was there and you had this experience of many is like manure where you know you really do it really does go a little goes a long way and too much at once isn't right but um, a good a good load doesn't hurt um, but here's a question I have in your in your writings and in your descriptions of your project you talk so much about uh, being a productive permaculture site. And I thought since mm-hmm. most people are associating permaculture with more home scale land uh, land design, and it's not so it's not so frequent that you have a production scale farm talking about permaculture principles. Uh, maybe you could explain a little bit more about uh, how you walked into that uh, into that permaculture work. And we, we look at that on the, the permaculture in the, on the community level, largely, um, you know, we've seen that there's, there's a void in our community for fresh food um, that's sourced, you know, within a, within a close distance. Um, and then also on the design of our, on, on the farm. And the, uh, the goal here for us is to, you know, close the system, um, you know, meaning that like our, our nutrient cycle and, and our, our feed cycle for our animals and, and for the plants. So we we run chickens, uh, dairy goats, and they're for meat, dairy, uh, eggs, you know, meat from the chicken also. And, you know, the, the hope here is that we have enough land to eventually be able to grow enough grain that, um, to supplement the chickens, you know, above the pasture and enough hay for the goats to where we can, um, you know, kind of keep all of our feed homegrown, and then also, in, in that sense, have our, our nutrients between our cover crops and our animals be solely farm-raised also to where we can get off of. Uh, like right now, we use bag guano as a fertilizer, and we do use manure from some of our neighboring farms. And, uh, you know, on a larger scale, that, that's kind of, that, that's the hope, that's the, the, the dream here is to, is to get to that point. Um, and the, and how long do you give yourself for that dream? Because... In the long, this kind of long, long-term thinking is a major part of permaculture and importing materials and capitalizing and setting up systems that, over the long run, will be self-sustaining. You just uh, reflect right. a little on, because many people also don't even know what the principles are. You don't have to go through them all, but 
Like, why sure. are you, why do you have well, those goals? Our hope goals? there is to, it's a, with. It's, our hope there's within 10 years, um, 10 to 15 years, has kind of been you know where we could be um, you know doing a small scale grain operation and being being able to feed the animals. And we may have to scale back or scale up our animals also to find the appropriate uh, quantity there because we we really haven't found that with um, we don't know our potentials or our limits here necessarily as far as production. Um, being that we're in the desert, you know, most of our irrigation is it, it's, it's uh, groundwater. We, we can't really rely on rain out here on a production farm. Most of our rains come in the summertime in the monsoon season, and on a good year we'll get a little bit of winter rain also, but our average rainfall is only 12 inches a year out here. So, you know, the, we using the drip um, it works out to about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars an acre for us to, you know, between parts and installation of the drip irrigation system, and so that's a big uh, that's a big limiter for us, it just just financially um, to getting more land under cultivation, and that so that's one of the big hurdles as far as getting more grain and more pasture going. Um, you you can't even grow grains that, without irrigation, right? No. No, oh, I mean, you, there's, there's some really short season stuff you could do. Um, amaranth is one that you could grow with the monsoon rains. Um, we were looking well, I know that chickens love amaranth. Time. They do. Yeah, they do. They do. And we, we usually will graze them on that because if we get, if we get a wild you know, amaranth field come up in the, with the monsoon rains, it's great for grazing. Um, the, the wild amaranth we have here, though, is also a pain as far as being a weed in the gardens. So <laughs> we try and have that knocked down before it seeds, too. So it, we never use it as a grain. Well, the weeds of today are the crops of tomorrow. Who knows? Who knows where we'll go? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so Tucson, from what I understand, is emerging, and there's a lot of interest in new energy and the local food scene is just popping along. And there's also, um, yeah. in the permaculture framework and in the Tucson experience, particularly a strong emphasis on wild foods. Could you reflect maybe a little mm -hmm. on, on your farm, the Zone 7 uh, situation and, and, and what's going on in the Sonoran uh, wild food community? Sure. There's a, our biggest one here is the mesquite tree. Um, it's, you know, one of the biggest. There's a, and that's a leguminous tree that's in the acacia family, and it has these great yellow pods. We get two crops a year of those pods, um, and they're a really high-protein uh, seed and pod. And, and for human consumption, we usually run those through a hammer mill, and... Uh, come out with a what we call mesquite flour, and that usually gets mixed in by people with, you know, for pancakes or breads, and it gets mixed with a wheat flour. It doesn't have, a, you know, a, a gluten in it to be able to bind uh, by itself, but it's a really sweet, and it's almost it almost tastes like malt. It's a really, really nice, um, you know, nice food, and it actually is a really good an animal food also. Um, we have, in our area, we're in this spotty patches of saguaro cactus out here, which give off a really nice fruit in the summertime. If we've had enough winter and spring rain, um, it'll put off a, you know, a, 
if you've ever had dragon fruit or um, like a pithaya fruit, it's real similar to that, and it's in the same family. We also have nopal, the uh, prickly pear, which is you can use the pads for that, you know, fried or grilled. And then it also bears fruits. And then we have uh, choya out here, which is another cactus that has little buds on it. And the most popular thing for that is to pickle it, or at least what we like to do is pickle it, and then uh, it's almost like pickled okra. It has a little bit of gelatinous um, substance to it, and it's pretty tasty. And then there's, you know, as you get closer to Tucson, more like the Zone 9 area, there's uh, ironwood trees, which also have a bean on them. That's edible, and you can eat them in the green stage, like peas. And the Palo Verde trees, which will, I've seen them out here a little bit, but they don't seem to grow native out here where we are, but more in like the Zone 8, Zone 9. Um, the Palo Verde trees also have a really nice bean on them. Um, beyond that, we have, I believe there's 13 different species of uh, wolfberries that are native in the Sonoran Desert. And um, those are really popular. Those are like the goji berries that are really popular in the, like the health food scene. Yes. Um, but we've got our own, you know, native varieties out here, which is really wonderful. And then we have, you know, this time of year, we've got uh, globe mallow and uh, wild mustard. And in the summertime, we get a wild purslane and a, you know, wild amaranth that are not necessarily native, but really nice kind of wild uh, greens. Well, and that's, that's kind of the question. It starts to become, you know, in a place where uh, I wouldn't say traditional, I would say commercial production agriculture, you know, presents some challenges in terms of having sufficient water to grow the kinds of crops that uh, those of us with a European background are interested and used to eating. And then being at the right. same time surrounded by this tremendously abundant uh, environment. What does it make you feel as a farmer, in the, as you're pointing ahead, like you're talking about feeding your own chickens and having a self-sustaining uh, farm organism? Like, what, what's the kind of fringe vanguardy thinking in terms of the kind of farming that's going to make more sense in the coming decades down there? I think for the first step that we see is to bring more food production, be it conventional or, you know, traditional um, farm methods with, with irrigation and with, you know, European and uh, cultivated crops and getting people first to, to um, get more into at least a locally-based diet. And I think culturally the, the foodways have to shift for, you know, for people to appreciate the native foods. And, and to shift over to eating that. And I think, you know, it might not be in my lifetime, but I would hope that, you know, at some point that that's where, you know, we start to appreciate these things a little bit more and then and focus on our, our native foods a little bit more. But I, I don't, I, I kind of see like what we're doing here at our farm is more like a step in that direction and not, and by no means kind of the, the answer to our, uh, our, <laughs> our problems here in this region. But I do think that, you know, and we, we do have to, so, so in that sense, you know, if we do have to kind of pump groundwater for, for the time being and, and grow just to, just to make that shift, and, and mostly because people are just used to, and this goes, you know, really for the whole country, we're all used to being able to go into the grocery store and get anything at any time of the year. So until we can, you know, uh, you know, first see the... Uh, 
Eyes on the prize. (laughs) Oh, what's that? I said eyes on the prize, baby steps. Here we go. Yeah, you know. (laughs) That's where we get we get um, the whole the sustainable thing is a big buzzword, and that's you know we're always telling people we're not sustainable um, for that for that sake. In the long term, even what we're doing, you know, we feel like we're doing pretty good as far as agriculture goes, but in our region. Long term, what we're doing really isn't sustainable, um, and it does have to be a shift back toward more uh, indigenous foods and wild foods. Well, we better recruit some more people to get involved. I'd say. What's yeah, the? Is, there's is, actually, there's, there's are there are there young ones in the hopper down there? Any other there, cool there things are, going that we should a talk few about? Organizations that are starting. What's that? No, keep talking. You're on the right track. Okay. There's a few yeah, organizations. There are a few organizations that are uh, in, you know, in the efforts of training, um, you know, for the time of young farmers, and uh, you know, and there's a lot more interest just in general out here with the native foods scene and with uh, you know backyard gardening is is blowing up. And like you said, you know, the local food scene is is just kind of popping here right now. Um, we have a there's a food bank in Tucson that has a department called the Community Food Resource Center to it. And uh, they, have, they run a small uh, training farm, and they run a program called the Youth Apprenticeship Program there that's trying to get young folks introduced to agriculture and, and mostly uh, youth that don't necessarily have an agricultural background but just have, have some bit of an interest in it. And uh, tying that in with school gardens and home gardens uh, with the youth also. And... Uh, our farm, uh, Sleeping Frog, is, is uh, teaming up with another farm, uh, Walking Jay, which is also in our area. They're south of Tucson, and we're trying to put together an educational. Uh, well, actually, it's, it's formed now. The nonprofit is there, but we're still kind of in the in the building stages of actually the, uh, organizing it and getting uh, financing going for that also. But the whole with uh, Fern is what we're calling it, the Farm Education Resource Network is to offer vocational training um, on small-scale uh, polycultural farms to where, you know, in, in an effort, I guess, to give some alternative to what's going on with the, the university uh, trainings here. Because we're, we're, our state is known for cotton and cattle, and, you know, citrus is also really big out here. Uh, but, it, you know, a lot of large-scale monocrop and uh, there's not a whole lot of alternative offered in this area at the high school or the university level uh, for this kind of agriculture that we're practicing. So we're we're hoping to get the, the few small farmers there are in the area um, kind of into a teaching position, and uh, the hope there is to be able to comp- compensate the uh, farmers uh, for their time teaching and um, you know kind of see that as the only way to really get you know, more more youth kind of on uh, real hands-on, on-the-job kind of training. Wow, I'm impressed. I'm thankful. That sounds so right. That's like the craft programs that we have. The consor- It's a consortium um, methodology where the different farms partner mm-hmm. together so that the apprentices get a, a fuller uh, learning experience. Right. And what's your time That's frame? When should people start calling you for applying... When do people start calling you to apply? 
Um, hopefully within the next three months here. Um, we just finished oh. a lot of the, uh, yeah, I don't know, we're still on the paperwork end of things. <laughs> and, it, you know, oh. for both farms, just terrible. Know, we're trying to take as much time as we can to get a way to work on it. Uh, now, okay, so I, I, I think people are, I think people are going to be flooding towards you and are going to be walking into a much better set of opportunities these days than there were even five years ago for young farmers. Um, maybe mm-hmm. you could, as, as a kind of a final, a final point, uh, explain how, uh, how you found farming and what, you know, because you're, you're, you are, you've moved from the small, you were apprenticing, you had the small farm, now you have the big farm, now you're getting involved in institution making and education. Um, what was the first spark? And, and how do you see, and how do you see the welcoming that you're about to do, uh, the welcoming that you're about to do with your institution, kind of in that, in that history, in the personal history? Sure. I was uh, a little more background on me. I was born in a small town in Illinois called Sterling, Illinois, and uh, it's about 100 miles west of Chicago. And it's a big corn and soybean town. And so I grew up, you know, my and I grew up in Tucson, but I'd spend my summers back there a lot of times. And that was my understanding of agriculture was was you know just this large uh, thousands of acres of one one crop, be it corn or soybean, as far as you could see. And that was a huge turnoff to me. So when I was young, um, you know, and at that point, all the truck farms in, near my hometown had pretty much gone away. But um, I saw that growing up, and I, that, I thought the last thing I wanted to do was be involved in agriculture because <laughs> it just it seemed pretty boring. And the, kind of the, the hook for me is when I was 18 and, you know, started, I was out living on my own and uh, living with roommates. You know, we got into cooking for ourselves a lot more than we ever had, and, um at that point, started seeking out, you know, kind of fresher food and, and tastier food. And it was just like something, you know, something sparked for me to just follow the food to where it came from. And uh, I, you know, I got into working. I eventually worked at a, a little co-op or a little health food store in the produce department. And, you know, that was one more step closer. And then from there, I was able to, to meet uh, some farms uh, or some farmers in Arizona and California and go out to their farms, visit the farms. And it was, you know, in a sense, just like one step, one leading to the other. And uh, then I decided to do the apprenticeships or the internships and the volunteering on farms, and I kind of got the bug for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that that just really developed into a passion for me. And, um, you know, I think one of the big things that keeps us going, I think the four of us that, uh, that own this place together, we all share that passion for, for food production and and uh, for healthier food than uh, maybe what we grew up with. And it's also, um, of all the different jobs that I've done, it's, it's you know something I can go home at the end of the day and uh, feel proud for the day's work that I did. Um, you know, have some sense of purpose, which is, you know, that's, that's huge, I think, as far as keeping you going and whatever your work is. Well, it's a uh, step-by-step. feels like we could make, yeah. make, a, um, we could make a, a, quicker, a quicker set of steps for people who are tuning in to get, to get inoculated and catch the bug 
but then also be able to right. actualize more efficiently. I mean, right. I don't know if it's the word, hope, but... I think now, and I think that's happening. It, it does seem like it's happening across the country where more opportunities are coming, you know, coming available, which is great. But that's something that, um, you know, the, the more we can make that available, um, I don't know. It, you know, the hard thing still remains, I think, with the, with the youth is uh, financial viability as far as a career. And, uh, you know, that's something where, we, you know, we're trying to ask our local communities to step up, and that's where we found the CSA model to really be the, you know, the, the strongest um, in that kind of a thing. So if we, if we can get more people in the community, understand that not everybody's going to, going to want to farm, but for those that don't want to farm but they still want to eat, if they can get out and support, you know, their, their, young, their existing farmers and their uh, prospective farmers, um, through that that route, um, CFA just serves as, as great financing, and uh, you know that's uh, you know that people are going to need some bit of financial security to to do this. Yeah, there's a lot. There's the bottom line, and 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 then uh, similarly in the youth department, to get an expectation though uh, within in the early in your career that you if you're going to make this work. You're going to have to, you know, keep pretty disciplined and pretty focused and figure out if you can do a little off-farm income and learn how to live for cheap and, uh, you know, survive the the entry period, the startup period. So getting Absolutely. getting the training on the community level, the expectation, and then getting the training of the young farmers that they know what to expect and how to prepare to be a little bit broke for a little while, or very yeah. broke for a little while. Yeah. Uh, any last uh, tagging of resources that you wanted to do as a conclusion, of especially in the realm of permaculture uh, and, and productive farms or institutions that really help you along great, your, your way? Permaculture network. Yeah, there's a, there's a great uh, permaculture network here in southern Arizona called the Sonoran Permaculture Guild, and they're, uh, it's specifically for our dry land and uh, desert environment. Uh, and like I said, the, the network, the Farm Education Resource Network, or FERN, and uh, we are online, and I'm terrible here. I believe it's fern.org, um, but if you Google it, that, that'll be up again here soon. Well, there you go, Tucson on the rise. Thank you so kindly, Adam, for joining us. This has been Greenhorns Radio. You're welcome. And thank Severin. you, Severin. And thank you thank guys you. for doing what you do. Yeah. Our pleasure. And this is Heritage thank Radio. Talk to you later. We are happy. Talk to you later. This is Heritage Radio. My papa was a great old man. I can see him with a shovel in his hand. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.